All right, today I'm reading from John chapter 6, verses 24 to 60. Once the crowd realised that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and you still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it?
Good morning. My name's Stephen, one of the ministers here. On Friday, I was at Coles and I was shopping for crackers to go with cheese. And there are all sorts of options. There's water crackers, rice crackers, bagel thingy crackers, Jats crackers, super grain crackers as well, quinoa. There are shelves and shelves of crackers. But despite that, I couldn't find the one that I was looking for. Someone had introduced me to these crackers that have got like nuts and fruit in them and they're kind of dangerously good. And I'd bought them at Coles before, but this time I just couldn't find them no matter how hard I looked. And I felt a bit annoyed. I was annoyed by the the millions of options. And at the same time, hypocritically, I was annoyed that they didn't have my option. Now, I know what you're thinking. Get over it, Stephen. First world problem. And you're absolutely right, of course. Having so many options of food so easily available is the stuff of dreams for so many people in our world. And before the agricultural revolution, the vast majority of people in our world just lived on very few options for food, very few staple diets. And they worked hard just to survive. We, of course, just saw a video from Compassion that Well, not many of us can really relate to that video, to her situation. Jennifer, she described how if her mother didn't come home with any money or if she only came home with a dollar, they wouldn't eat. And the next day, going to school, she'd just have a glass of water. Now, for most of the world throughout history, food has meant hard work and the the connection between bread and life is very strong. And this was certainly the case for the crowd's that were following Jesus. These crowds, they taxed fairly heavily by Herod and the Romans. They live off bread and fish, of which there is never enough, which is only won by hard work. And abundant food for them, it's just the stuff of dreams. Now, it's, it's to these people that Jesus declares, like we just heard, I am the bread of life. But before he comes out and and says this, what we didn't read today is what he does to help them see this. Remember last week that the Pharisees missed the amazing work that Jesus was doing and instead of being amazed that Jesus was, was healing and doing God's work, they got caught up on the fact that he was working on the Sabbath. They missed seeing what his work pointed to. Well, in John 6, some time has passed since that conflict. Jesus has left Jerusalem and and he's now back in Galilee. But a similar question is hanging in the air. Will the crowd see what the Pharisees are missing? Will the crowd see where the signs are pointing? John tells us that it's nearly the Passover which means that they're close to the time of the year when they remember how God saved them out of slavery in Egypt, how he brought them through the Red Sea, how he took them through the wilderness and brought them to the promised land. They're remembering that. And John tells us that Jesus is being very intentional about what he's doing. So it's nearly Passover. They're in the wilderness. And Jesus asked Philip to buy bread for all these people. And John says in verse 6 that he asked this only to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And what Jesus had in mind to do is feed 5,000 men 
plus women and children with five bread rolls and two small fish. And suddenly these people who know, who know very much what it is like to be hungry, suddenly they have an abundance of food, more than they can possibly eat, so that there are 12 baskets full that are collected. And John makes sure that we see that Jesus does all this intentionally. But why? John calls it a sign in verse 14, and later Jesus calls it a sign. But what does it signify? What does the sign point to? What are we supposed to see about Jesus from this sign at the Passover in the wilderness? Well, the people think they know. Look at verse 14. After the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, way back, Moses had told the people that they could expect that there would be another prophet like him. So in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. But if you know the story, after Moses came Joshua, not even a prophet at all. Many years later came Elijah and Elisha, pretty impressive prophets. Elisha even managed to feed 100 people with 20 loaves of bread. That's pretty good. But no one to date was anything like Moses. See, God had said to Moses that he would be like God to the people because he would be the mouthpiece of God. And in Deuteronomy 18 verse 18, God said to Moses that the prophet to come would be like that too. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. Well, the people see Jesus feeding them at Passover in the wilderness. And naturally, where do their minds go? To Moses, to the prophet that he predicted. Do you remember how in the wilderness God had fed them through Moses for 40 years with the manna that came down from heaven? At their time, there was a belief that when the Messiah came, the king came, that again there would be manna coming down from heaven. And the crowds, they're thinking, surely Jesus must be the prophet. Surely he must be the king, the Messiah. But have they read the sign right? Because look at how Jesus reacts in verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus doesn't go along with their understanding of what's going on. Now, it's not that they're wrong about him being the prophet that Moses predicted or the Messiah King. If you read Acts 3, the Apostle Peter says that Jesus is the prophet that Moses predicted. Back in John 4, we, we saw that Jesus said he is the Messiah. Jesus doesn't go along with their understanding of what's going on because they want him to be a prophet. They want him to be a king in their own image. It seems they're thinking, this is great. Jesus can give us what we really want. He can satisfy our deepest longings. But it seems they think their deepest needs and longings have got to do with physical things like food. They think Jesus feeding them 
is a sign that, that points to Jesus bringing them comfort and plenty in this life. They think they, they can make him a king who will lead them to get rid of the Romans who are taxing them into poverty. They think Jesus will bring about the days in this life when each person will sit full, happy, content under their own fig tree. In other words, they want to force Jesus to fit their agenda to do for them what they want him to do. They want him to wage war and rule how they want. Who does that? What kind of people are these people wanting to force Jesus to become their king? Well, the answer is, of course, that they are people very much like us today. In fact, we're probably worse these days in some ways because we tend to think that spiritual things are personal and and individual. So it's very easy for us to think that it's it's quite okay for people to make Jesus in their own image. You can have one version of of Jesus and I can have another version of Jesus and that's, that's fine, that's okay. And if we're people who are interested in, in reaching out to our culture, it's very easy for us to tweak Jesus to be the kind of king that we think our culture wants. Loving, accepting, keen to accommodate our lifestyle choices, keen to get behind our plans for happiness, keen to help us live as fulfilled and trouble-free as is possible. Meanwhile, the real Jesus withdraws from these kind of plans. Jesus will not be the puppet king that they want or the puppet king that we want. Jesus cares about being the kind of king that God wants him to be. And because of that, he's the king that we need. So we see that Jesus withdraws from the crowds who want to force him to be their kind of king. And at night, what happens next is that the 12 disciples decide to cross the lake back to civilization for some reason. And they're a bit over halfway when Jesus comes to them walking on the water and they're terrified. And so he says to them, it is I. Literally, he says, I am. This was the name that that God had revealed to Moses all those years earlier. Here, Jesus is giving his close followers a greater glimpse into who he really is. Psalm 77 in verse 19 says, Your path, God, led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your flock, your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Just like God had led his people out of slavery through the sea, here is God the Son making his way through the mighty waters. Jesus here is giving his close followers a glimpse into his true glory. He's not going to be the kind of king they might want, but he is the kind of king they need. And we see this, we see why in what he says next to the crowd. Now, as you can imagine, the crowd is pretty confused at this point. They've been trying to make Jesus their king by force and he's rudely just disappeared. It's not very grateful of him. And after looking for him everywhere there, they can't find him, so they... they, look over on the other side of the lake where he mysteriously turns up. And so when they find him, they say, when did you get here? But as usual, Jesus doesn't answer their question. He answers the real question behind their question. He says in verse 26, 
Very truly, I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. They saw the signs, but they wouldn't see where the signs pointed to. And Jesus tells them their problem in verse 27. He says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. This is really the first point that we've been talking about. Don't work for food that spoils. Jesus says their focus should not be on on what spoils, but on what endures to eternal life. The problem with them is that their bellies are captivated, not their hearts. It's like their main guiding principle in life that directs what they do, what they care about, the thing that governs them and and their choices and, and leads them is their appetite for food. Now, we might think, how stupid, but we can do the same thing today. For most of us, it's not food that we're working for like that because food is just so abundant, but we are still all too often working for things that spoil. What's our main guiding principle in life? You know, what directs us? What governs our choices and and leads us? What has our heart? What has your heart, your imagination, your longing? What, What are you working for in this life? Is it things that spoil? I was reading something the other day about Australian households and debt. Apparently, our household debt to income is one of the highest ratios in the world. Some people describe it as extremely elevated. Some people describe it as a ticking time bomb. Three in in ten households in Australia apparently are over-indebted. What's led us here? You can blame governments and housing shortages, or on the other hand, if you're the government, you you can blame hipsters having Smashed avo in in cafes, as they say. But at least in part, what's to blame is that we are working for things that spoil. We're seeking life in material things. Life in the houses we own. Life in the cars that we drive. Life in the holidays and the experiences that we accrue. Life in material things, even when, when they're beyond our, measure, our, our means of, of getting them. We, we work for houses that are too far above our reach, cars that are beyond us, but we make the sacrifices for them, sometimes because our guiding principle in life, just like them back then, is to work for things that spoil. And we look around, and we look at others, and we compare, and we can be forever looking, but failing to see what is truly worth working for but jesus calls them and us in john 6 to work for something different he calls on them to work for food that endures to eternal life which the son of man will give them but did you notice yet again they miss his point jesus is telling them to focus on what's actually worth focusing on but they get fixated on the word work They hear what you really need to do is to work. So look at what they ask him in in verse 28. What must we do to do the works God requires? They they totally skip over the second part of what Jesus said. They're not interested in him and, and what he said he wants to give them. 
their focus is on themselves and they seem pretty confident that they'll be able to do whatever work it is that God requires of them. So Jesus tries to bring their focus yet again back to what they really need. The work they need to do is not about focusing on themselves at all. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. What's the work that God requires from us? To believe in Jesus. What work do we have to do to have the food that endures to eternal life? Believe in Jesus. Where should our focus be? Jesus. This is really our second point we've been talking about. Work for what lasts forever simply by coming to Jesus. Jesus' point is not that you need to work hard in this life to get eternal life. His point is what you really need is to believe in Him. Their focus should be on Him. Now, finally at this point, they see what Jesus is saying, but they don't like it. So they ask in verse 30, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? And they kindly give him a bit of a hint about what he should do. They're kind of like teenagers who are never full. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Can you believe these people? They missed the sign that Jesus gave them when he he fed 5,000. And the fact that they ask for this sign shows that They'll just keep missing the signs because they don't like where the signs are pointing. Think about what these people have experienced. Think about what what they've seen with their own eyes. But what are their experiences gaining them? Nothing. Because they won't follow the signs to where they're pointing. They won't listen to the words that Jesus is speaking. Later on, Jesus says in verse 63... The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words, the words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Now, we might wish from God all sorts of experiences. We might wish God would just let us see with our own eyes. But Jesus says here that experiencing and seeing things from God will do nothing for us if we won't listen to his words. They wanted Jesus to be like Moses and and they thought that's where the signs were pointing. But Jesus is telling them with his words that the signs point to him being even greater than that. In verse 33, he says, Very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. And in verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Do you see that? It's not just that Moses pointed to Jesus. The manna that fed the people in the wilderness, the manna itself pointed to Jesus. He is the true bread. Back in chapter 5 last week, Jesus said that the Pharisees searched Scripture looking for eternal life, but they missed it because the Scriptures pointed to him, but they refused to come to him. Now, we might think when we read that in John 5 that Jesus is talking about a few passages here and there that point to him and predict his coming, but he has in mind so much more than that. He is across John. He is the scripture fulfilled in every way. The scripture points to him in so many ways. He is the true manna in the wilderness, 
the true Passover meal. He's the true bronze snake lifted up in numbers. He's the Lamb of God, the true sacrifice for sin. He is the ladder into heaven, the temple. He is the abundance of wine, the good shepherd. He is the living water. All these things, all these Old Testament metaphors, stories, all these Old Testament structures, they all point to Jesus. Everything is radically centered on him. He is the bread of life and he's come down to give life to the world. Now they saw the signs that Jesus was doing, but they didn't want to see where the signs were pointing. Now notice, they followed Jesus. They wanted to make him king. They're even called disciples, but still they didn't believe. It makes you wonder, what on earth is it going to take for people to believe, to truly believe? And Jesus tells them in verse 37, all those the Father gives me, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. It takes the work of the Father for people to come to Jesus. Unless he draws them, unless he enables them to come, we just won't come. And it takes Jesus doing the Father's will. And Jesus tells us, what the Father's will is in verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Everyone who looks to the Son will have eternal life. Our youth group, here you you probably have figured out is called fix i tried to get them to change the name i thought you know fix what does that mean it'd just be simpler if we were called trinity youth apparently that's not hip though i did notice in their logo they have youth up there right but fix it's actually a good name for a youth group because it's not about fixing people up that's not why it's called fix it's not about kids coming to to get a fix that's not it either. They're called fixed because it's all about kids fixing their eyes on Jesus. And that's a good name because it's exactly what God wants us to do, to look to the Son. Whoever looks to the Son has eternal life. You know those times when you wonder, am I really a Christian? Am I really living this? Do I really believe this? And you know those times when, when you push those kind of questions even further and you start asking, do I show that I really believe this? Am I passionate enough? Am I changed enough? Am I experiencing the Spirit's power enough? Am I sinning less and, and keeping in step with the Spirit? And sometimes we even take it to abs- absurd kind of questions like, am I showing enough signs that I'm predestined by God? Is there an online survey that I can take for that? Why do we do that? I'll tell you why. It's because the devil wants us to take our eyes off Jesus and to put them here on ourselves. But looking down at ourselves accomplishes nothing. It's only by fixing our eyes on Jesus, looking to him, that we have eternal life. It's by fixing our eyes on Jesus that we're changed, never by fixing them on ourselves. 
It's God who draws us. It's Jesus who saves us. And it's Jesus who keeps us and will never drive us away. So why on earth would we look anywhere else except to him? It's like when we're saved, we walk through an archway that says, I come to Jesus, I believe, I I choose you, Jesus. But after we've walked through the archway, we look back and we read, yes, you chose me, but it was because I chose you. I drew you. I kept you. Isn't that hugely comforting? We are chosen by God, saved by God, kept safe by God. Now, for those of us who've who've done this, who've come close to Jesus, our guiding principle in life, it can never be to work for things that spoil. That's not our guiding principle. But neither is our guiding principle in life to work thinking that we can achieve eternal life. Our guiding principle in life is simply this. What helps me keep looking to Jesus? This is what directs what we do and and what we care about. This is the thing that, that governs us and our choices and leads us in life. What helps me keep looking to Jesus? Now the crowds, they couldn't handle that kind of guiding principle for life. They don't want that kind of focus on Jesus. Look at verse 41. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Why is it as soon as someone knows your father and mother, they never take you seriously anymore? (laughs) How can he now say, I I came down from heaven? To them, Jesus is promoting himself too much. To them, he looks so basic, underwhelming. To have him as your life's focus, to come to him, to believe in him, it just seems so pathetic to them. I was listening to the radio in the car uh, the other day and it was um, International Women's Day recently. And so they had a panel of of women talking about feminism and they were discussing all the different waves of of feminism and, and how there's still so much work that's needed today uh, for women's rights and especially in this age of strong authoritarian male leaders running superpower countries. Now as I listened I couldn't help thinking that so many of of the real problems that that they identified, I couldn't help thinking so many of those problems are answered in Jesus. But I thought for them and for those strong authoritarian men and for so many people They think Jesus looks underwhelming. They think he doesn't have what they want. But the thing about Jesus is he he refuses to be the king we want and he insists on being the king we need. And here in John 6, he really pushes the people. He pushes those who are coming to him and who are following him to see that not only is he the centre of all things, but he pushes them to see that they and all the world desperately need him. Look at verse 53. He says, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. 
This is not Jesus talking about communion here or, or the Eucharist. This is Jesus talking about the same thing that communion talks about. This is Jesus talking about his death on the cross. And he's very literal here. Because we will literally die without his death. And we will literally live forever only by his death. You see, Jesus can never be whatever we want him to be. He's not on about being whatever we want him to be on about. He's not that kind of king. He comes to do the Father's will, not ours. And the Father's will is that he will die for us to give us life and to keep us in eternal life. And unless we come to him and believe in him, make no mistake, we die. We just don't have any hope outside of him. Either we eat what he's offering or we die spiritually, eternally. And this is... The last point we've been talking about, we've got nowhere else to go. Did you know that pride is the great enemy to believing in Jesus? Pride is the great enemy of life. Jesus comes down from heaven. He humbles himself for us. He gives his flesh, his blood for the life of the world. And unless we humble ourselves and feed on him, we die. Many people today are offended by that. Many of Jesus' own disciples back then were offended by this. They missed where the signs were pointing. And look at verse 66. John writes, From this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. But not all of them. In verse 67, Jesus turns to the, the 12 disciples and he says, You do not want to leave too, do you? Have you ever asked yourself that question? You know, maybe when someone's got sick or maybe you've lost someone close to you. Maybe you wonder why God hasn't protected you from some awful situation or some horrible person. Maybe you've been unemployed for months on end or maybe your heart has been captured by someone or something else. and Maybe it feels like Jesus just demands too much. Have you ever reached that point where you've been close to wanting to leave? Whenever I've found myself in that situation, I find that I also end up echoing the words that Peter says in verse 68. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's just no one like Jesus. There's, there's no one who speaks like him with words of eternal life. There's no one who, who understands us like him, who sees and diagnoses and gets who we are. There's no one who sees what we truly need like him. And there is no one who gives his all for us, his very life, not to be the king that we might, might think we want, but to be the king that we need, the bread of life who gives his life so that we might live forever. You know, anywhere else we might look to for life in this world, it will spoil. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. Jesus alone is the Holy One of God. Will you humble yourself and feed on him? Are you looking to him? Are you going to keep on looking to him?
Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the enormous comfort it is that you are the God who draws people, who enables us to come. You are the God, Lord, who lifts up our chin to see Jesus in all his glory, to see his great sacrifice for us as the one and only way that we can live. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus who willingly gives his life so that this world might live. Lord, help us to see that there is no other way. Help us to look to Jesus and to keep on looking to him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.